Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to sexual violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. It's 10.15pm on Saturday, the 30th of June, 1928, a cold midwinter's night in Sydney, and the main drag of the inner western suburb of Dulwich Hill is all but deserted, its terraced stores dark behind their porch fronts. But lights do burn in the windows of the confectionery store at 522 Marrickville Road. Inside, the owner, 55-year-old single woman Esther Vaughan, stands at a counter, tallying up the day's takings, while at one of the refreshment tables, her 57-year-old widowed sister, Sarah Falvey, sits down to a simple supper of sandwiches and a glass of soft drink. Despite the lateness of the hour, their work isn't quite done yet. That's because, in a few minutes, the picture theatre down the road at the tram terminus will empty out and there will be one last wave of customers as sweet tooths and sweethearts come in for a bag of boiled lollies, a bottle of cordial or a packet of cigarettes. For the moment though, all is quiet. That is, until someone steps into the shop from the darkness outside. This isn't a film fan getting a head start on the rest of the movie crowd, but he does look like a villainous vision from the silver screen. That's because this thin, tall man in a hat and overcoat hides his eyes behind a black mask, and in his hand he brandishes a revolver. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. Sarah Vaughan was born in Dubbo in 1870, with her sister Esther coming along a couple of years later. 
Sarah married a man named John Falvey in 1895 and moved to Warren, 80 miles northwest of Dubbo, and within a couple of years they had a daughter and a son. While Sarah was a wife and mother, Esther remained unmarried and moved to Sydney. In 1911, she took over the confectionery store at 522 Marrickville Road, Dulwich Hill, living in ground floor rooms at the back of the property and subletting the first floor to residential tenants. On Esther's first day of trading as a shopkeeper, she took just three shillings from the sale of a single packet of cigarettes. Slowly but surely, though, she built her business and amassed wealth. In 1916, after 21 years of marriage, Sarah's husband passed away. With both her children old enough to look after themselves, Sarah moved in with Esther and helped her run the store. Back then, when a visit to the lolly shop ranked as a high point on any child's calendar, the sisters were fixtures in Dulwich Hill. And as they progressed through middle age, Esther and Sarah got to watch their young customers grow up into adults and, in turn, bring their own children into the store for a treat. The sisters weren't just popular, they were also prosperous and generous. So generous, in fact, that they were well known to make small loans to neighbourhood people who found themselves short of a few bob. But Esther and Sarah's prosperity also led to rumours that they had a fortune in cash stashed somewhere in their store. At 10.15pm on Saturday the 30th of June 1928, their confectionery store was surrounded by darkness. It was near the fringe of a residential area where there were fewer streetlights and the neighbouring premises a real estate agent and bootmaker on one side, laundry and stocking shop on the other, were closed. Though this suburban pocket looked deserted, there were people around. Mrs Lucy Campbell, wife of the real estate agent, and her boarder, engineer Mr James McDowell, were in the residential rooms next door. And across the road, Mr. Alex Ross and his wife were still awake in their rooms behind their small goods store. There were also two pedestrians strolling along Marrickville Road, local mechanic Mr. William Kelly and his wife. And passing on a tram, a woman whose name was never revealed saw something peculiar. What she saw was a man in a suit crouching in a darkened doorway beside the confectionery store, affixing a masquerade ball mask to his face. The woman was so curious about this strange sight that she got off at the next tram stop, some 300 yards distant, and started walking back to see what he was up to. By this time, Mr Kelly and his wife were strolling by the confectionery shop. Behind its closed door, they heard a man shouting, Open the door! Open the door! And they also heard women who sounded angry or upset. Through the window, the Kellys could make out two or three figures inside. Taking the ruckus for a domestic disturbance, the couple walked on, 
covering the 40 or so yards to the corner of Durham Street. That's when they heard two shots, a few seconds apart, followed by a woman's scream. Whirling around, Mr. Kelly saw a man leaving the confectionery store. This well-dressed figure seemed to put something in the pocket of his dark overcoat. Pulling his hat over his eyes and turning up his collar, he walked quickly towards the Kellys, keeping his head down. He passed them, turned the corner into Durham Street, mounted a parked motorcycle with a sidecar and let it roll down the road before starting the engine and roaring off into the darkness. Across the road from the confectionery store, Mr. Alex Ross saw events slightly differently. He and his wife were in the dining room at the rear of their small goods store when they heard a loud bang and three seconds later, another one. Thinking there had been a car accident, they rushed to their front window. Across the road, they saw a thin, tall man wearing a mask walk out of the sweet store, slamming the door behind him, which Mr. Ross said was then reopened by Sarah Falvey before, through the window, she sank from view. The man put a revolver in his overcoat pocket and then pulled off and threw away his masquerade mask. Due to the poor light and the wire fly screen across the window, Mr. Ross couldn't clearly make out his features. But the man was calm as he walked to a parked motorbike with sidecar. Running out onto the street, Mr. Ross wasn't able to make out the license plate as the man coasted along Marrickville Road before starting the engine and speeding off down Durham Street and vanishing into the night. Next door to the confectionery shop, Mrs. Lucy Campbell was standing in her living room when she heard noises. Two reports and then more muffled sounds. It was confusing, sounding like a motor car backfiring, followed by perhaps moans and screams. Upstairs in his rooms, Mr. McDowell heard the shots and rushed downstairs as he called out, Are you there, Mrs. Campbell? I think there's been murder. They rushed out into the street and into the confectionery store. What they saw was horrific. Crumpled across a chair inside the shop, Sarah Falvey was shot. Reports vary as to whether she'd been hit in the throat or the chest. Either way, she was covered in blood and had suffered a terrible wound. Despite her injury, she tried to speak and what Mr McDowell and Mrs Campbell heard her say was, she's shot, a burglar. Sarah was talking about her sister Esther, who was stretched out on the floor, moaning by the counter in a pool of blood, having been shot through the chest. Mr McDowell and Mrs Campbell tried to ease Sarah into the chair. Mr McDowell recalled, she moved slightly and died. Dr. Alan Owen, who lived at 435 Marrickville Road, rushed to the scene, pronouncing Sarah dead and ordering an ambulance be summoned for Esther. 
Within minutes, a big crowd had gathered and calls were made to police headquarters and to the local station. The ambulance arrived and rushed Esther to Marrickville Hospital, Dr Owen still by her side. To him, she mumbled a few words. He thought she was asking for air, but couldn't actually be sure that she was even conscious. That was probably a mercy, because the gunman's bullet had done too much damage, and Esther Vaughan died within minutes of being admitted to Marrickville Hospital. Police were now going to be hunting a double murderer. A Marrickville inspector, sergeant and constable were first on the scene, followed by officers and constables from Redfern Station. In all, more than 20 of Sydney's finest would work the case, under the direction of the dynamic Inspector McKay, recently promoted to Chief of Detectives. Police secured the scene, their fingerprint and photographic specialist gathering and documenting evidence. The most striking clue, of course, was the mask, which witness Mr Ross had had the good sense not to touch, lest he obliterate any fingerprints. As investigators worked inside the store, the crowd outside swelled into the hundreds. Many of these people had known the victims. One friend told a reporter, they were two very quiet and very lovable ladies who never offended a soul. Another neighbour who had spoken with the ladies earlier that evening said sadly, the kiddies in the district will miss Mrs Falvey and Miss Vaughan. They were much loved, always giving help in charities for children. Three quarters of an hour before the tragedy, they were discussing a children's ball. The murder scene was lent even more poignancy when Irene Moran, Sarah Falvey's married daughter who lived in nearby Petersham, arrived with her baby, which she left with Mrs Campbell in the real estate office. Irene rushed to the door of the confectionery store. She screamed, Oh, where is my mother? A detective tried to restrain and soothe her, but she couldn't be consoled and insisted on going inside, where, confronted by her mother's body, she collapsed. Later that night, Sarah's son, Irene's brother, Claude Falvey, was notified of his mother's murder at his home in Cogra. Police interviewed Mr Ross about what he'd seen. Mr Ross offered that the killer was 5'10", which was tall for the time, of thin build and walked with a buoyant step. His attire, he said, made him seem like a clerk or a businessman. Quote, What struck me was the man did not look like a gunman or crook. And he added, If he was a local youth, I had never seen him before. How Mr. Ross would have known whether the man was local wasn't clear, given he admitted he hadn't got a good look at the man's face. But Mr. Ross felt the mask had to be a valuable clue. There must have been prints there because he tore it off his face with his right hand and a piece of broken string was attached to the mask. 
It was not a crude affair such as burglars might use, but a differently moulded papier-mâché mask such as those worn at masked balls. The gun, police believed, was a revolver. Otherwise, spent cartridges would have been found at the scene. Medical examination showed that Esther and Sarah had been killed with 32 caliber bullets. Both women had been shot at close range. One detective said, From the position in which those were fired, even a child could hardly have missed. Given one of the women had powder burns, police theorised that there had been a struggle. What was strange was that there were no signs that anything had been stolen. Five pounds, 12 shillings was found on the counter where Esther had left it, and that amount corresponded with what she had entered into a notebook. Another two pounds, 15 shillings was found in a tea tin in the store. The till contained a few pounds in notes and silver. In all, there was about 10 pounds within easy reach in the store. For the rest of the weekend, police worked around the clock, with lead detective inspector Pattinson establishing his headquarters in the store, complete with stenographer and typewriter for the purpose of taking statements. Aware of the neighbourhood rumours that Esther and Sarah had a hidden hoard of money, inspector Pattinson and his men made an intensive search of the store. The Sun newspaper recounted, they moved practically every article in a big stock of confectionery, tobacco and cigarettes which the shelves held. They probed into corners and crevices in the building, which is a fairly old one, and in the most unlikely places their search was rewarded. In small tobacco tins in a cavity beneath the window of the shop, they discovered 20 pounds in silver. Various parcels of sovereigns totalling £11 were discovered behind furniture and around the skirting boards in a back room. Other small amounts were found in tins under the counter and in a peculiar recess between the window and a partition that shuts off the window space from the shop. Notes and more silver were found in a cardboard box in a corner under the window where, in their own words, the police had to crawl like ferrets to reach it. All of this loot totaled £55. The police also found hidden bank passbooks which showed that Esther had savings of £2,000 while Sarah had £300. What was as intriguing was that a neighbourhood woman named Mrs Emily Maroney, who lived at the shop on the corner of Durham Street, told police about an encounter the dead women had had about three weeks ago. Sarah, she said, had said that on a Saturday night, a well-dressed man, who wasn't a local, had come to the shop and borrowed 15 shillings from Esther. When the man next returned to the shop, Sarah said she believed he'd come wanting more money from Esther. Instead, her sister had asked to be repaid and had been given nothing but excuses. This had made Esther angry and the man had left. 
Mrs. Moroni said Sarah had told her she was surprised Esther had given the man money because she hadn't liked the look of him. Based on the evidence in the shop and what they had heard from Mr. Ross, Mr. Kelly and Mrs. Moroni, by the Monday after the murders, the police were operating on the theory that the man who'd killed Esther and Sarah had known them and that he also knew the Dulwich Hill area. The Sun reported, Each new piece of information which reached them suggested strongly that the double murder was not the outcome of a haphazard raid by a city crook. Evidence accumulated to indicate that the man knew the shop well. The most likely scenario went like this. Aware that the women were cashed up, the gunman had donned the mask to prevent being recognised, entered the store and threatened the sisters with his gun. Rather than being cowed by him, Sarah had closed the door behind him and prevented him from escaping. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, they were not greatly disturbed by his appearance and demand, it seemed, but closed the door on him and called for assistance. He was in a desperate position. Instead of bailing up the women, they had him bailed up. And there's a reasonable chance that his eye mask wasn't enough to stop them from identifying him. Panicking, he'd shouted at them to open the door. When Sarah didn't, They'd tussled and he'd shot her, and then turned and shot Esther before escaping, slamming the door behind him. Still on her feet, Sarah's last act had been to open the door, perhaps hoping to summon help. The Daily Telegraph pictorial told readers who to look out for. Watch for this man. He is aged between 20 and 25. He is 5 foot 10 in height of thin build, dark complexion, smart appearance, and when last seen was wearing a dark overcoat and grey felt hat. The Sydney Morning Herald noted the obvious challenges. The description of the young man whom the police are looking for would tally with that of many young Australians. Crushingly, there proved to be no fingerprints on the mask, and it later emerged that Mr. Ross had indeed picked it up. But announcing a £500 reward, authorities still hoped the mask might prove a key clue. A police spokesman told the newspapers, It is fully realised that in this case we have a big job on, and of course the public is sure to help us in every possible way. The reward of £500 should produce someone who knows the murderer or has a suspicion of him to forward information to the commissioner. Such information would be treated confidentially. Sellers of masks would do well to have a look at the one worn by the murderer. It is at the CIB. A close scrutiny of it by shopkeepers may bring to light the seller and also the buyer. The fact that the elastic had been broken and an ordinary piece of string tied to it is information which may lead to a clue. Probably someone besides the murderer knows of the elastic and string being tied together. 
The police urged the public to keep in mind any man they knew who fit the description who had a motorbike and sidecar or knew how to ride one and who had a revolver and whose temper was such that he might commit such a crime in hot blood or in extreme fear of capture. The cops also said such a young man may be displaying signs of worry or may have a keen interest in newspaper stories about the crime. On Monday, a crowd of about 1,500 people blocked the footpaths of Lower George Street in Sydney, where the funeral for the sisters was held at Woodcoffill's Mortuary Chapel. The mourners and onlookers besieging the two wreath-covered hearses as they wended their way out of the city east to Waverley Cemetery. The Dulwich Hill double murder was, unsurprisingly, a newspaper sensation. The Daily Telegraph pictorial lived up to its name by devoting the full front page to photos and illustrations. There were photos of the mask, the interior of the shop, the last meal still in its place on the table, detectives on the scene, and an artist's graphic recreation of the moment the masked man shot to death the screaming white-haired sisters. Given there had been two other homicides in the Dulwich Hill area in the past year, and many more across Australia, including homegrown mobsters Squizzy Taylor and Snowy Cutmore blasting each other to death, a meeting in Newcastle of the Australian Society took the opportunity to declare there was a crime wave sweeping the continent, and that the culprit was most definitely in very large measure, quote, the class of pictures which have been screened in Australia. Calling for stricter censorship, the society's spokesman said that, quote, pictures were viperish things, and 30 or 40 years ago, we had fewer murderers and desperate criminals. It is all wrong. Law and order are ridiculed on screen. If a policeman is knocked over, it is clapped. There is too much of this Yankee rubbish and we should stand up and protest against it. But the public weren't ridiculing the police. Instead, they were flooding them with tips. Chasing down one such lead, detectives raided a house in Ashfield at daylight where they found a man with an unlicensed revolver who'd been riding his motorbike on Saturday night in the Dulwich Hill area. But he had a rock-solid alibi for the actual time of the killing, though he was arrested for the illicit gun. Two other bycatch arrests followed as the police cast their net wide for the killer. The Daily Telegraph's headline screened, Murder Hunt Terrifies Underworld. Yet by Thursday, frustration was setting in, with the Sydney Morning Herald reporting. The opinion is expressed in many authoritative quarters that the young man, having remained undetected since the night of the crime, may now elude arrest altogether. The Truth newspaper, 
The weekly scandal sheet that published on a Sunday and so had missed the story for a full seven days was playing catch-up and desperately needed a new angle to sell copies, despite the police investigation being at a standstill. So it went for a triple whammy, doing a photographic recreation of the murder, giving the killer the title The Masked Terror and then suggesting despite their reenactment featuring a man, that the killer might actually be a woman. The accompanying article was an exercise in weasel word journalism. There is a possibility that the masked terror of Marrickville, the cruel and callous slayer of two defenceless middle-aged ladies, is a woman. Fantastic and incredible though that theory may seem, the fact remains that it has been taken into very serious consideration by the police and they have not yet finally rejected it. Actually, police had, but it didn't make any difference because over the next month and a half, the police made no progress. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. In Catching the Masked Terror. The inquest into the double murder began on Thursday, the 23rd of August, 1928. Truth's report was more sober and neatly conveyed how frustrating the proceedings were. The paper's article began, Can you give any information at all that would help in ascertaining who committed the murder? The city coroner, Mr May, put the question with monotonous regularity to each witness at the Marrickville murder inquest. With equally monotonous regularity came back the answer, no. Someone heard words and shooting in a little confectionery shop in Marrickville Road, Dulwich Hill, on the evening of June 30. Someone saw a woman fall inside the shop. Someone else saw a man come out of the shop with a revolver in his hand. Another person saw the man jump on a motorcycle and ride away. The bodies of two elderly sisters, Mrs. Sarah Jane Falvey and Miss Esther Vaughan, were found in the shop. There, fact ends and mystery begins. That accurately summed up the day's proceedings, which saw Dr. Owen, Mr. Ross, Mr. McDowell and Mrs. Campbell tell what little they had seen and heard. The police asked for an adjournment, with the inquest to continue in 10 days, which set off rumours that there'd been a breakthrough in the case. As they went to print with their weekly newspaper, Truth confidently included the late news that there was no news. No development, the headline read. Inspector Pattinson had personally issued an official denial saying that no man was held by either city or suburban stations in connection with the crime. But 
By the time truth hit the streets a few hours later, that was no longer true. Officers under the command of Inspector Pattinson, who was now acting head of the CIB, had arrested a man on Friday night in connection with other alleged crimes, and this man, they suspected, had also killed Esther Vaughan and Sarah Falvey. The man in custody fit the physical description, and when they questioned him, he wasn't able to provide a solid alibi for the Saturday night the sisters had been murdered. What the police had been waiting for as truth went to print was for key witness Mr Ross to attend the Marrickville police station and see if he could pick the suspect out of a lineup of a dozen men. And when he did, they charged their suspect. His name was John Patrick Reynolds. Asked what he thought about being identified by a witness, he said, I'll admit it was a wonderful lineup, but I didn't do it. John Patrick Reynolds' stated birth date was 1910, which made him 18 at the time of his arrest but there are other records that suggest he was born in 1907, which would have made him 21. In any event, he was born in Albury. Nothing is known of his early life, except that in 1927, he started north, with the idea of staying with his father in Sydney. Reynolds was a grifter and a drifter. On the 9th of December, 1927, Reynolds stole a suit and other items worth £10 from a man he was sharing a room with at the Globe Hotel in Bombala on the far south coast of New South Wales. Reynolds had also stolen a wallet, pocket knife and cash from another man. He was caught with the stolen goods and cash 80 miles north at Breadbow. Reynolds pleaded guilty to all charges, but said he'd never been in trouble with the law before. He said he was travelling from Melbourne to Sydney and stole because he was hard up. Reynolds was fined £5 and ordered to pay nearly £2 in costs. Unable to cough up, he was given two months in Goulburn Jail. Released, Reynolds made his way to Sydney where he lived with his father in Goodacourt Avenue, Earlwood, less than two miles from the confectionery store conducted by Esther Vaughan and Sarah Falvey. Almost immediately upon his arrival in Sydney, Reynolds was in trouble again. But this time, it was far more serious. On the 22nd of February in Earlwood, Reynolds working as a door-to-door vegetable hawker, called at a house where 17-year-old Gladys Bormer was at home. There, she alleged, he forced his way into her bedroom, grabbed her by the throat and tried to rape her. But when she fought back, he fled. Arrested, Reynolds was charged with assault with intent to commit rape. When the case was heard in May 1928 at the Darlinghurst Court, John Patrick Reynolds denied he'd assaulted the girl, but admitted he'd tried to kiss her. 
Even now, 90 years later, proving rape, let alone intent to rape, is difficult and puts a lot of stress on the accuser. And back then, it was even harder, with far more shame and victim blaming attached. So it was that the jury found Reynolds, who we'll see was a smooth talker, not guilty. The intent to rape charge, which suggested a propensity for opportunistic violence, was not mentioned in press coverage of his arrest for the murders of Esther Vaughan and Sarah Falvey. It's unclear whether reporters just didn't make the connection or whether there was a sub judice ruling in place. Similarly, Reynolds' previous convictions for theft also weren't mentioned. What was mentioned, however, was the other charge Reynolds had initially been arrested on before being charged with the double murder. Knowing what the witness, Mrs. Emily Maroney, had said about the sisters being grifted by a young man who wanted to borrow money, the police had been on the lookout for such a character and had become aware of one such crook's M.O. Reynolds' scam was that he would dress well or even dress in the uniform of a public official of some sort and tell shopkeepers a tale of financial woe. He had, he'd say, lost or had stolen important funds and he would lose his job if he couldn't make the matter right immediately. What he wanted was a short-term loan, 15 shillings, a pound, maybe two, to make things right. On Friday the 24th of August in Cogra, Reynolds had told a chemist named George Kelly that his name was Williams, that he worked for the railway ticket office, that his father was a police constable, and that he desperately needed the sum of 22 shillings. But Kelly called the cops and Reynolds was arrested and kept at Cogra police station overnight. On the Saturday, he was transferred to Marrickville police station and questioned by a Sergeant Leonard about his movements on the night of the murders. Reynolds didn't make any statement that would connect him with the killings. But what he said was extremely suspicious. Initially, Reynolds said he'd been in Albury, having gone down there on the 14th of June. Thing was, Sergeant Leonard knew this wasn't true and took Reynolds to another Sydney shopkeeper he'd defrauded on the 29th of June, the night before the murders. That's when Reynolds changed his story and said he'd been in Sydney, but he'd been at home and asleep at the time that Esther Vaughan and Sarah Falvey were killed. He'd first learned of the murders, he said, when his father read an article about them to him while he was still in bed on Sunday morning. But if Reynolds was at home, it makes it curious that when his father arrived at Marrickville Police Station to find out what was happening, he reportedly said, If you did it, then hanging's too good for you. Did you do it? The old man then asked. Reynolds said he didn't. But it was an odd thing for the father to ask, given his son claimed to have been at home. 
But then Reynolds changed the story again when he remembered he'd actually been at a city pool hall at the time of the killings. On Monday, Reynolds was escorted from Marrickville Police Station in a big touring car whose windows were screened with curtains. A large crowd gathered at Newtown Police Court to catch a glimpse of him, with the public gallery packed to capacity by 10am. Much newspaper attention concentrated on his appearance and demeanour. The Sun reported, Reynolds stepped up briskly through the floor opening into the large dock, his lips twitching in a faint smile. He sat down at once and seemed merely to take a mild interest in what was going on. He was dressed in a dark grey suit and wore smart dark tan shoes and fashionable brown shot silk socks. He did not wear a collar, his shirt being open at the neck. Reynolds is tall and thin with high prominent cheekbones and narrow, rather long features. His dark hair was carelessly parted on the right side, a sweeping clump of it falling near his left eye. His hair was closely cropped over the ears in the popular fashion among youths. Reynolds was remanded to appear in Central Police Court on the murder charges and further remanded to appear on the false pretense charge back in Newtown Court. The Sun newspaper reported that as the charges were read out, quote, he did not appear to take great interest in them and smilingly nodded to an acquaintance through the court door. His snigger was faintly audible. This account was corroborated by the Sydney Morning Herald, who said that Reynolds had laughed on several occasions. And as he was led from court, bound for remand in Long Bay Jail, Reynolds offered more smiles and headshakes to people he knew outside. While Reynolds cooled his heels in Long Bay, police accumulated evidence of 20 other frauds, with amounts ranging from one shilling to six pounds, with the total amount being over 60 pounds. Seeking to establish whether Reynolds owned or at least knew how to ride a motorbike and whether he'd ever owned a gun, police interviewed his friends and acquaintances. On Thursday, the 20th of September, 1928, another large crowd gathered to see Reynolds, handcuffed to a detective, led into the coroner's court for the resumption of the inquest. Sergeant Leonard told the court about Reynolds' various alibis. The police officer said that in his initial interview at Marrickville Police Station, Reynolds had denied he knew how to ride a motorbike. So Sergeant Leonard brought in one of his acquaintances, a man named Holmes, who said the accused had told him he did know how to ride a motorbike, and this man appeared at the inquest. Confronted by Holmes, Reynolds' response was to cave. Quote, if you say that, I won't deny it because I know you wouldn't tell a lie on me. Sergeant Leonard said a 32 caliber revolver had been found in the fork of a tree near to where Reynolds had been living just prior 
to his arrest. Reynolds said he'd never owned a gun, but a Mrs. Ethel Irwin, with whom Reynolds had been boarding, said Reynolds had tried to lure her away from her husband and said he'd take her husband out into a back lane and put a bullet through him. When she asked where he'd get a gun, he had allegedly said, I have a little beauty at my uncle's at Bankstown. Mrs. Irwin also testified to having once seen a revolver in Reynolds' room. Her husband, William Irwin, said Reynolds had once come home saying, quote, I have just been chased. I wish I had my gun with me. Mr. Irwin said Reynolds had mentioned the gun on numerous other occasions. But Mr. Irwin's testimony was tainted by him at one time having been connected with the underworld. But his account of Reynolds ending his tenancy by stealing clothes and cash matched exactly with the offences for which he'd been convicted and sent to Goulburn Prison. The most crucial moment of the inquest came when Mr. Alex Ross took the stand. He was asked to describe how, at Marrickville Police Station, 12 men had been marched in a circle for him. After five minutes, he'd touched one man on the shoulder because of his resemblance to the man he'd seen leaving the confectionery store. Now, in court, he was asked whether Reynolds was that man. This is what Ross said. I am not sure now. He seems different to me. The Crown Prosecutor asked, You are not sure if this is the man you picked out? Mr. Ross replied, I would not like to swear. The Crown Prosecutor pressed, You were satisfied he was the man at the police station? To which Mr. Ross replied, He resembled the man. The coroner then intervened to ask what was different. Mr. Ross said that Reynolds did not have the stoop in his shoulders that the man he picked out of the line seemed to have. He said, he is like the man I saw leaving the shop. Reynolds' lawyer asked, you could not swear that he is the man? Mr. Ross replied, I can't swear that. Mr. William Kelly, who, with his wife, had heard the argument in the store, heard the shots and then seen the gunman leave along Marrickville Road before getting onto the motorbike and driving off, had not been able to pick out anyone from the lineup at Marrickville Police Station. Now, in court, Reynolds was asked to stand up. Mr Kelly said that he was of similar build. Reynolds' defence lawyer said, you could not be absolutely certain that this is the man? Mr. Kelly replied, absolutely not. The coroner then put it to the Crown Prosecutor. I take it there is no evidence to connect this revolver with Reynolds or with the shooting. The Crown Prosecutor replied, that is so. We had a positive identification up to this morning, but we have not now. The coroner could come to only one conclusion, and that was to declare 
an open finding. An unknown person had murdered Esther Vaughan and Sarah Falvey. And at the police court later in the day, John Patrick Reynolds was formally acquitted of the murder charges. But he wasn't free to go. The following week, Reynolds was back in Newtown Police Court on four charges of false pretenses. The police prosecutor put it like this. The defendant has systematically visited small shopkeepers throughout the metropolitan area and has defrauded them of small sums by playing upon their sympathies. This time, Reynolds admitted his guilt, with Sergeant Leonard saying police could, if necessary, prove another 10 charges against him, saying he'd been at work from Marrickville to Vaucluse. Reynolds' lawyer told the court, He has been to the country looking for work. He has fallen into the hands of bad friends who led him astray. But he will go straight if given a chance. John Patrick Reynolds got six months in prison. You might think, given the trouble he was in and the trouble he had avoided, that Reynolds might have, as his lawyer said, gone straight. But you'd be wrong. In 1930, he was back at it, defrauding people left, right and centre with the same scam. Caught again in July that year, he got a total of 10 months for stealing and false pretenses. Not long after his release, in August 1931, Reynolds disappeared, leading to his kin placing a little advertisement in the Sydney Morning Herald Classifieds asking for any information about his whereabouts. Like a bad penny, Reynolds popped up in 1932 in Adelaide, using the alias Williams again, and again up to his old tricks. He was caught and tried on two charges in December, earning himself another seven months behind bars. Interspersed with all this criminal activity, Reynolds also had time for a love life. In March 1931, he married a woman named Irene Foster, only to desert her when he disappeared. She filed for divorce in April 1936. Three years later, in March 1939, living in Sydney again, Reynolds married a woman named Dulcie Faulkner. It wasn't long before he was cheating on Dulcie with, of all people, his first wife Irene, who herself was married to another man. Then Reynolds escaped the mess, and both women, by enlisting in the army in November 1939. I had John Patrick Reynolds' military records digitised by the National Archives of Australia, and it's perhaps no surprise that he wasn't a model soldier. Reynolds arrived in Palestine in October 1940, and was made of all things, 
a military policeman. Yet within two months, he himself was serving 21 days detention without pay for the catch-all offence, conduct to the prejudice of good order and military discipline. Unfortunately, there's no way to know what he did specifically, but the severity of the punishment at the time when every man was needed indicated it was reasonably serious. In July 1941, in Cairo, Reynolds was fined three pounds for another offence. By March 1942, he was back in Australia and in mid-1943 was working as a military policeman in Perth, Western Australia. It was there that he was at the scene of the brutal murder of another middle-aged widow. At about 6.15pm on the night of the 26th of June, Ellen McGlynn, 53, was raped and bludgeoned in a reserve near the corner of Bulwa and Brisbane Streets in Perth. A married couple who lived across the road heard screams. The husband, Mr Eric Weston, went to investigate and saw a man and woman lying on the grass in the darkness. Thinking they were having sex, he returned to his house but kept watch from the veranda. Seeing the man leave the darkness in the park, then circle back, Mr Weston crossed the road and confronted him. There, the man attacked him with a bottle and a vicious fight ensued with Mrs Weston rushing to her husband's aid. All three were injured and blood spattered. The Westons later identified the man they'd been fighting with as 34-year-old returned soldier Norman Pugh Lawrence, who had been drinking all day. Lawrence's defence was that he'd heard screams and gone to investigate, finding a woman's scarf and a man's hat. Next thing he knew, he was hit over the head with a bottle by a man, blacked out, and woke up in the same hospital where the Westons had been admitted for their injuries sustained in their fight with him. The first officials on this bloody scene were two military policemen, one of whom was John Patrick Reynolds. Reynolds' evidence was that he'd been drawn to the park by shrill screams. There, he'd encountered Norman Lawrence, who allegedly said to him, quote, I know I've done something wrong, and I can take what is coming to me. Reynolds' offsider, Corporal Patrick Criddle, found the dead woman with her clothes in disarray. Then, regular police arrived and took Lawrence into custody and to the hospital. Reynolds said that he had helped load Norman Lawrence into the ambulance and that the man was unconscious. At the hospital, a doctor examined Lawrence and found he had abrasions to the chest, knuckles, thighs and below the kneecaps, as well as a slight concussion and bump on his head consistent with having been hit with a heavy object. 
Mrs. Ellen McGlynn, meanwhile, had died from a lacerated wound on her scalp, consistent with having been hit with a blunt object, and her body bore bruises on her neck, jaw and chin, along with scratches and bite marks on her left breast and bruises on the lower part of her body. At the inquest and trial, Norman Lawrence, who had no prior convictions, maintained his innocence. But Mr. Weston's testimony that he'd seen him with the dead woman and the testimony of Reynolds, whose statement amounted to Norman Lawrence confessing to the crime, was damning. There was physical evidence too. A blade of grass found in Lawrence's hospital bed was said to be the same as the grass on which Mrs. McGlynn had died. But given he'd had a fight with two people in the park, that grass could have come during that altercation. Lawrence also had semen stains in his underpants, though he claimed these were the result of him having had sex two days before the murder on the 24th of June. But the most damning physical evidence was type A blood found on Lawrence's collar. His own blood and that of Mr. and Mrs. Weston's was type O, while Mrs. McGlynn's was type A. In Lawrence's defense, character witnesses said that no matter how drunk he was, he was always a gentleman, quiet in nature, and had never acted badly towards women. On the 12th of August, 1943, Norman Pugh Lawrence was found guilty of murder and sentenced to hang, though his punishment was soon commuted to life in prison. But was he actually guilty? On the evidence tendered in court, it's easy to see how the jury reached their verdict. But had Lawrence's defence lawyer known that the first man on the scene had once himself faced rape and murder charges, he may have been able to come up with at least a plausible alternative theory as to who killed Mrs. McGlynn. To be clear, there is no evidence that says John Patrick Reynolds was the man responsible, but police didn't look at any other suspects and he wasn't asked to account for his movements that night before appearing on the scene. And his statement that he'd been drawn to the park by shrill screams is maddeningly ambiguous. Mr. and Mrs. Weston had heard the screams at 6.15 p.m. John Patrick Reynolds arrived nearly half an hour later, by which time Mrs. McGlynn was dead. So whose screams was he referring to? The next few months of Reynolds' military service were no better than his previous record, with him twice fined and docked a day's pay for being absent without leave. He was busted back from Lance Corporal to Private, and by the 24th of September 1943 was transferred to a medical wing suffering anxiety neurosis on the way to being discharged as medically unfit for further service on the 10th of December 1943. Did Reynolds' mental condition have something to do with what he'd seen that night? Or was it something 
he'd done. John Patrick Reynolds was without doubt a seasoned liar, an opportunist and a conman and thief who had no qualms about taking advantage of people. Was he simply that? A petty thief who twice found himself caught up in bloody murder? Or was he something more? We'll never know. What we do know is that he moved back to Sydney and spent the rest of his life living in Dulwich Hill, just a two-minute walk from where Esther Vaughan and Sarah Falvey had conducted their confectionery business and been murdered. John Patrick Reynolds died in 1988 at the age of 83. While Truth Newspaper had gotten much wrong during the case, the scandal sheet did get something right in its first report on the masked terror, when their reporter wrote, But whether the terror is a man or a woman, the chances are now that his or her secret will never be discovered. Aided by luck, the terror has made a successful and sensational getaway, leaving few clues for the police to work upon. Detectives engaged upon the case frankly admit they are up against it, and it is an odds-on chance that the masked murderer of Mrs. Sarah Falvey and Miss Esther Vaughan will cheat human justice. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The show will return in two weeks. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, I'd really love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes because it helps other people find the program. For more information about this and other stories, go to the website ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.